It's a tale of violence, bar brawls, murder, fraud, and even a little pro wrestling. It's the story of Charles Parson Davies, part two. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You pressed the button. I pressed a button earlier and recorded these noises. You pressed a button and now you're listening to these noises. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And I am joined, finally at long last, by a man who is much like UFC back in the 90s. He is not allowed in 30 plus states. It's Chongo Bronson. He's back. How the hell are you, man? Oh, yes. Uh, if my if my bail bondsman is listening, I'm doing very well. And I was home nice and early before curfew. Hello, Hippodrome Express. Capital to uh, metaphysically see you all again. Yes. And I am glad you are back because we are in the middle of a crazy story. We set the stage with Charles Parson Davies, part one. We talked about his childhood, his family, the crazy stories therein. We talked about the beginning of his career, and I'm glad you're here for it because now we're getting into the meat of things. And anyone who's listened to our episodes about wrestling in the 1800s will know that these stories get fucking crazy and off the rails almost immediately, and this is no exception. Oh man, anytime there's a multi-parter on somebody that you... It's kind of like a restaurant, right? If it's a little kind of dingy hole in the wall, you know the food is going to be amazing. And if you've never heard of the guy, and we're doing a multi-part series here on the Nerds, you you can bet that it's going to be a doozy of a, a seat buckler, right? Oh, absolutely. It's always fun with guys like Charles Davies when you look at it and you go... There isn't even a Wikipedia page about this guy. And then I find enough material for like a two to four parter. It's wild. It's wacky. And this is also a fun time to revisit a lot of the matches with Evan Strangler Lewis. Uh, kind of the recurring theme of these latest episodes is that when we first started this show, I wasn't doing the proper research. I was just reading a few books, taking those authors, research at face value, their opinions as objectively true, and going about our business. And now I'm kind of going through the history archives on my own, putting together these stories, and I find that a lot of their information was wrong or interpreted poorly because they didn't find this information over here that puts context into that. And that is the subtle joys of doing history as a whole because you can't tell a person's story in whole without every single detail linking together in one long chain of context, learning, mistakes, so on and so forth. But it's also at the same time almost impossible to tell a person's story in whole because if I covered every aspect of Charles Davies' life and career, we would be talking until the year 2026 and I frankly don't want to live that long. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if the medium will still be around by then. I think we'll all have microchips. But, dude, you're like, you're like the Indiana Jones of pro wrestling history, man. Oh, and with all the traps involved. While trying to find information for some of these stories, I nearly got crushed by a giant stone, had darts shot at me. Oh, man, the, thing, the adventures I have, the things I do to give stories to the rest of you people. So hopefully you appreciate it. Hopefully you like what we talk about. Yeah, and, uh, you know, like and five-star review all our internet things. 
So let's jump into this story. Let's start with August 3rd, 1886, when Charles Parson Davies was at his bar, the store, meeting with Patty Ryan. Patty Ryan, the former heavyweight boxing champ, the man who lost his title to John L. Sullivan, and the two had reconciled and were looking to maybe put together another fight with Sullivan. And then all hell broke loose. According to the Chicago Tribune on August 4th and 5th, Wrestler Duncan C. Ross had come to the bar with a boxer named Harrison, reportedly from Canada. They were hoping to put a Harrison-Ryan boxing match together, and had been drinking. They got into an argument with a similarly liquored-up local stenographer and notary, F.L. Wilner, and that argument was taken out back where Wilner pulled out a rather large knife. <laughs> oh, I was expecting a pen and a, he was going to tell him off stenographer stuff. But no, that's a great like setup for a joke. There's a, a wrestler and a Canadian boxer walk into a bar. And we know who the joke is about to be on because Parson Davies went out back and got involved, told Wilder to put the knife away, and then grabbed him and dragged him out into the street, getting slashed across the leg for his trouble. Well, soon enough, Wilder returned to the store, brandishing his knife once more. He was quickly disarmed, dragged out back, and given the beating of a lifetime by the former heavyweight champ, Patty Ryan. <laughs> yeah, it's like, dude, yeah, you're, I'm surprised he got, he got off so late the first time. It's like, do you not realize they will take your knife and fuck you with it if they want to, dude? You got the heavyweight champ of the world and you're threatening him with a knife? All that does is give him green light to actually hit you. Yeah, there is a certain context to be understood that this is Chicago in the late 1800s. It's a much easier time where for people to pull a knife, pull a gun in a drunken argument. It wasn't quite the Wild West, but it wasn't far off. But time and fucking place. You, know, you don't go into the den of the most famous boxing and wrestling promoter, which is therefore populated by boxers and wrestlers, and start some shit when your background is stenography and being a notary. Yeah, I'm actually surprised he got he got away with getting a cut on Parsons' leg, and then he still got to hold on to his knife. Yeah, well, it's it, it's just funny to like throw somebody out of an alley and be like, he won't even think to come back next time. You know, I yeah, what a dumb. That's what he's like. He's like, I showed them. I'll come back. Like, what were you thinking, buddy? Yeah, uh, it makes me think about one time I was having to deal with like a Yahoo uh, at a job and I threw the guy out and then he was yelling and I pulled the door shut and just was like, ha, he'll never think to open that again. And he opened it and punched me in the face. Wackiness ensued. But that's not the wackiness we're here to discuss because let's get back to this bar in Chicago. Because once the initial brawl was over, the Yahoo had been disarmed and savagely beaten by the former heavyweight champ. And once this was over, Ross told Patty Ryan that Harrison could whip him in a fair fight. Patty Ryan took exception to this, and a fight broke out between Ross, Ryan, Harrison, and several other men at the bar. A local high society sort of man was involved, Major William M. Durrell, who was kicked repeatedly in the head and neck, and died most likely of a brain bleed at home that night. Woo, man, what did take my money? How does this not get booked? This is like the first... Like, back alley brawl, fatal four-way. Like, truly fatal four-way, old chap. Like, the Patty Ryan got into two fights in a row. He's like, you just saw him just work this fool over who had a, you know, Crocodile Dundee. That's not a knife knife. And then you're like, I can beat you in a round of fisticuffs world champ. 
What? It, but not tonight. It's a fatal four-way. According to the August 6th Boston Globe, Darrell had accompanied Ross as a financial backer and got caught up in the fight. Quote, an examination showed that the deceased had received numerous kicks and blows on the right side, extending from the shoulder to the hip. That there were discolorations, the result of blows to the back, and there was a large swelling on the neck, apparently caused by a blow or kick. But before you feel too bad for the man, you should know that he earned the title of Major in the Confederate Army, so... Yeah, so it goes. Yes, a fair, a fair burial indeed, a fair end for a Confederate commander. But um, you know, so what is cause of death? It was officially like fuck around and find out. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was yeah, a death by boot. <laughs> Fitting. Duncan Ross was angry about the whole situation, and the next day posted a thousand dollars with Davies for Ryan to fight Harrison clearly seeking in-ring and second-hand revenge. However, Ryan didn't even bother showing up to the meeting. But who did? Why, our 0-2 stenographer, F.L. Wilner, who came to, quote, do up Davies and Ross. He was quickly disarmed of his... What? <laughs> Sorry, dude, I'm just blown away! Yeah, so he showed up with a gun this who time. The fool, who the fool is about it? Why, why was he a fucking... Hitman in his previous life, and now he's trying to, he's been trying to get away from the action? If he was, he wasn't a good one. So, <laughs> he came to, quote, do up Davies and Ross, and he was quickly disarmed of his, quote, rather ugly 44 caliber pistol and thrown out, dropping his record to 0 and 3. Dude, that's pretty remarkable. He, this guy has, has that fighting spirit, though, you know? Get knocked down. X amount of times, get up, why? I mean, because why would you come back again with again? Although, I have to say, I did not see that coming. I was like, total, like, Undertaker Randy Orton meme when he said it. It's like, hey, it's the stenographer! It's the stenographer! Yeah, I, want, I wish I could find more on that guy, because, I mean, this is a dude who three times was like, I, you know, who wants to dance, bitch, with people on a world-class level. Like, what does this guy, like, how hard is this guy to deal with at work? What kind of fucking loop? This is the sort of, this is the sort of guy that in the Old West they would have hanged, and in more modern times they would have institutionalized, but he existed in that beautiful, lawless period of big city life in, like, 1880, 1890, early 1910s, where you could be the most dangerous fucking lunatic and still work in an office somewhere. Yes, that's, this guy has some serious chops, though. He's like, you know what? I could have got the heavyweight champ last night if I had only had my 44. <laughs> well, Parson Davies kept busy with boxing through the rest of the year, which strained his ability with it being prohibited in Chicago, as was, as far as anyone knew, wrestling. Davies personally went to ask the mayor for a license. The mayor told him it was up to the police, who had made the prohibition policy after the Haymarket riot. Davies then went to the police, who told him that the rule was for boxing only, and that wrestling was never forbidden under their policy. So it was game on for wrestling in Chicago. And I do love the mayor's, uh, go ask your mom, go ask your dad, you know, uh, reply to things. Like, hey, uh, can, can, we, can, can me and my friends get a pizza? Uh, ask your mom. And then mom feels too cornered to say no. Yeah, it's like, well, this is a question that might actually determine points in the polls, and I don't want to make the wrong decision, so go ask the, uh, the actual authority figure, because I, I don't want to piss people off anymore. 
The wrestling might be back, but Charles was having problems of another kind. His brother George, who went by Fred for reasons, was arrested for the federal offense of forging U.S. Treasury bonds. He had been on a bad financial streak and claimed in court that he had found them on the street and did not forge them himself. According to the Chicago Tribune, on February 3rd, he was accused of altering $300 worth of registered bonds, not the kind of thing you want to be on trial for. He was found guilty on February 1st, 1887, but decided to run forward instead of showing up for sentencing. This was bad news for Charles, who had co-signed the bond to keep Charles out of jail during the trial, and ended up paying for the $2,000 bond in addition to hundreds of dollars in court fees. Fred was eventually arrested again on April 4th and was sentenced to one year of hard labor. What a thing to be on the hook for. Yeah, first of all, that now we know the reason why he was not going, why, why George was going by Fred. And then, <laughs> yes, because, uh, and then, yeah, that sucks. Like, if you had to pay the full bond amount because your brother skipped out on your bail and you went halves on it, at least have the common courtesy to not get caught a month later, you jabroni. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you think about $300 today, it's like, ah, well, that's, that's not much. But $300 in federal treasury bonds in the late 1800s, that's a lot of goddamn money. And like some of the things I read, uh, apparently what he did is we, he did the old trick of bleach the, uh, the name off of it and then write his own name in the place. So it's very funny to be like, I just found him in the street with no name on him, so I tried to, you know, cash him in because I didn't know that was illegal. Oh, hard labor? I'll see you guys later. Yeah, really. Like, that's... Man. Let that be a lesson to any kids who find any Federal Reserve notes on the street. Yeah, just say no, kids. Just say no to federal fraud. And while all this was happening, Arthur Chambers, the former lightweight boxing champion of the world, was promoting Little Demon Joe Acton and was seeking a match for him against Evan the Strangler Lewis. Chambers had moved away from competing in boxing after an 1877 fight outside of his Philadelphia bar, which ended with a mangled left middle finger that required amputation, and yes, it was from a dude biting his hand in a fight. And as someone who lost a finger and still went on to have a half-assed mediocre fight career, I look down on him in the strongest possible terms. Yeah, if only he had not had his middle finger bitten off, I would ask him to turn his hand and flip himself off. Because <laughs> that's a bitch move. You lost a finger? You never heard of Ronnie Lott, man? You know, bit it off so he could play in the Super Bowl. That's the hippodrome of it. And that match went through, and that match was set for February 7th, 1887 at the Battery D building in Chicago. Catch as catch can rules, stranglehold allowed, 75-25 split of the gate. The, a lot of these articles made sure to point out whether the stranglehold was allowed or not. After the Sarakichi Mitsuda match, where he strangled him unconscious, after a couple other high-profile ones, that was always the question with uh, the, the, the original Strangler, is will this, will this hold be allowed? You know, because whether it was a hippodrome or a chute, it's a fucking dangerous-looking hold. It's much like how decades later with the second Strangler, Ed Lewis, when it was always a work, they made the stranglehold, that Boyzian brain being more of a headlock, so dangerous in presentation that... Everybody wanted to know, will it be allowed? And in this case, it was. And you know, that is one of the first 
proto examples of an angle drawing money and a gimmick match drawing money. You've seen it years later. It's kind of a lost thing now, but they did it for back in the territory days, whether it was like Ox Baker with the heart punch and it was illegal, but then he'd do it behind the ref's back and it'd cause a riot or the pile driver has, as another popular one where it's like it became overdone and became a gimmick to do behind the ref's back to get some heat. But man, back then they could use it. It's like if he didn't, if they didn't have the stranglehold in the match and it was a draw or something like that, he had his out and he stayed strong and it built the natural rematch. And man, what a brilliant use of such a simple idea. Now all I want to do is just do dishonest things in like a jiu-jitsu tournament, like a white belt <laughs> jiu-jitsu tournament. Like do a, like imagine you go to like, you know, whatever you might think a jiu-jitsu tournament looks like at a low level. Don't think of things like on a, like a blood sport or even the all valley karate tournament. It's like 500 matches happening at once in like a, in a rec center cacophony of noise have somebody's like coach start throwing a fit to distract the referee and one white belt puts another white belt into a uh, toe hold and it's just cranking along because leg locks and toe holds are usually not allowed in beginner or white belt tournaments and just cranking the toe hold while the other guy's team is like ref look look and the guy turns around and just switches to side control after cranking the guy's foot off i live in a very weird fantasy world that you should be glad never bleeds into reality Dude, I'm surprised the Gracies didn't book that shit. <laughs> oh no, the Gracies hated footlocks, you know that. Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> that is such heat. Yeah, you think about why you know because in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for a very long time, like footlocks were seen as like a dirty move and a thing you didn't want to do, and that's because the kind of like higher crust you know, more money in our pockets, aristocracy of the Gracie family and their students play, paying way too much for lessons, looked down and said footlocks were dirty because they lost via footlock leadlocks to a lot of the poor gyms and therefore didn't want them in competition. But that's a conversation for another day. Back to Joe Acton versus Evan Lewis. This match was well attended by nearly 4,000 fans, including a few hundred Wisconsinites that accompanied Lewis to Chicago. Over 1,000 people paid $1.50 for the good seats. 2,000 plus got the $1 cheap seats. So a heck of a gate right there for the time. Lewis weighed in at 180 versus Acton's 158. And that's not usually a good sign uh, when the weight difference is that steep. Especially when the, the man with the band hold has it, uh, has the green light, you know, that's scary. The, you know, the Strangler wasn't always the bigger guy in his matches, but he's got the definite size advantage here. The referees were Pat Killen and Dick Burke, both boxers represented by Parson Davies. And that's another thing that's not good. When you step into a wrestling match or a competition of, of other times, and the promoter has provided the referees who were represented by him, as is the guy across the ring from you. <laughs> Yeah, you know, holy Mayweather playbook right there, bro. Like, yeah, it's like if you, there, you know, we've talked about it before. There's several ways to fix a fight. You fix it by making it an outright work. You fix it by putting a guy who has no business being in there with the champ, with the uh, the the heavy favored for betting or for entertainment advancement, 
And the third way is control the referee. And that's a way we saw things going down in these days quite a bit because it's like, hey, here's our celebrity referee. It's a famous boxer who understands combat. Does he understand wrestling? Not at all. So this is going to get wild on that front. And plus, clearly the money trail goes back to the promoter, but that's pro wrestling, baby. Yeah, I, I always love it when like someone on commentary or someone in a key position has no idea what they're looking at. You know, speaking of the early days of MMA and the UFC, you saw that constantly with everything from refs to announcers to commentary. Nothing like Jim Brown trying to describe <laughs> jujitsu, bro. It's beautiful. And apparently people were starting to make Evan Lewis's name synonymous with horrific violence because the Chicago Tribune reviewed the match on the 8th with, quote, unexpectedly, and one is tempted to add, unfortunately, there was nobody strangled nor any bones wrenched from their sockets at the wrestling match in Battery D last night. That no bones were broken nor any windpipes everlastingly throttled was not the fault of the wrestlers, for they did their best. <laughs> the descriptions sometimes are just so juicy. The, the you know handwritten you know Hemingway pens with a feather that these guys wrote this in on, and then they typed it. Is it's pretty remarkable the, the gift of gab back then. Yeah, the the ability to write to be read, where like the literary element of reporting, which is for the most part gone at this point, because now we read our news primarily on our phone while pooping or riding the train. So the flowery literary language has just been disposed of for something that is just quick and easy to digest. Uh, the match itself sounds pretty pretty darn good. The first fall saw Lewis go for the stranglehold. Acton escaping it, Lewis catching Acton with a hip throw, but Acton scrambling to stay off his back. Lewis got dropped by what could only be described as a shoulder tackle, caught Lewis with a full Nelson, and turned his shoulders to the mat. So Acton, being the underdog, being the undersized man, caught Lewis with a uh, with a Nelson turn and got the first fall. That's awesome. And you know, that's it makes me think, uh, knowing the, the finish of the third fall, Another reverse way to use that angle to get somebody over is if he could survive without getting strangled, even if he loses, there's a victory in and of itself. So he's, he's up one nothing, baby face go. And during the first round, someone in the crowd shouted a taunt to Lewis about how he's not facing Mitsuda this time, but did so in the most racist way imaginable, because of course they did. Because this is coming off his hot two matches with Sorokichi Matsuda, where he theoretically hospitalized him both times and everybody was like oh yeah well you're not you're not facing somebody like Matsuda this time you're facing a real wrestler and uh, clearly those were not the words they would use in a crowd in this year but you get the uh, you get the drift yeah it would have been really cool if like M Matsuda music hits and he comes out and it just drops these fools it's like you guys think that until you, yeah the second fall went quick with Lewis getting the fall in three minutes. Uh, they got their rest period. And as the third fall began, it was plain that Lewis was spent and Acton was still ready to go. And go he did, catching Lewis with another Nelson turn for the pin. For the fourth, because this was a, you know, when they would do the three out of fives. Wow. And occasionally the dreaded five out of sevens, which is just completely insane. 
So Lewis came out hard for the fourth and lifted Acton up for a slam, but Acton stayed off his back, reversed Lewis, and pinned him again for a win at the best of five series. The crowd went wild, and Davies immediately worked on setting up a rematch, going out there, because Acton had done a, I will wrestle anybody for anything, and Davies ran out and tried to like get it happening immediately, but Chambers, representing Acton, would not sign the agreement and kept delaying things for months. So he got his win, and he wanted to milk that shit, because he beat the champ, dude, and he beat him pretty, dis- what, in four falls? Yeah, four he, out of seven? Yeah, and Lewis wasn't the champ at that point, but he was one of the biggest Yeah, stars. but I mean, I mean, Lewis, okay, the champ, it might be the wrong word, but Lewis is like... The household name of the business. He's the guy, he is the measuring stick. Yep, and that's why I, this is one of those ones where I'm very curious after uh, how to call it, if it was a work or a shoot, because at this point, the money betting would be on Lewis heavily. And we know yeah. where we know where the betting money would go uh, across the board, both for, you know, the individual better, the people who were on the inside, and the promoter himself and that's what makes me kind of think about things when I continued that article in the Tribune quote the champagne flowed in bathtubs at Davies saloon last night in honor of Acton's victory would not it be a considerable improvement of this sort of match if the men were allowed to use hatchets or axes and finish the agony at once if Davies could get up a match of this kind it should draw a big house judging by last night's enthusiasm So a couple of things to unpack. One, Davies was fucking partying uh, with everybody else at his bar. So that indicates a man who was not very sad about his man losing. Uh, it also indicates that a lot of money was made. And I love the bit about, what if we just let him use axes in their match? Which shows that because of Evan Lewis's brutality, the level for violence expected at wrestling matches had elevated considerably. ECW, ECW, exactly. Because this is you know they they're now, he's now brought in a type of wrestling which is seen as brutal to the point of being ungentlemanly, and the crowd is going wild for it. So he's becoming the first like in the era of print media being available coast to coast. He's becoming the first real true heel to hit the top of the uh, top of the mountain because there were people like Bauer people like Miller people like Whistler who people didn't like because of their persona in the ring and in appearances but Lewis was the first one where when he was an asshole you knew about it from LA to New York yeah and you know one of the timeless things that draws money you know, the baby face, the true top baby face is the proxy of the audience. It's their guy. They, he's in there telling Vince McMahon off for you telling your boss off, right? You're living vicariously through Stone Cold. That's one thing that draws, but that's hard because you have to have a person that resonates with a certain group of people. But what draws money, man, is people will pay to see a motherfucker get his ass kicked that they hate. And that is a time-honored thing, and he was one of the best at it. People wanted to see Strangler Lewis lose, and they wanted to see him lose violently. Yep, and that is what people were paying to see, and that's why I kind of think the Acton match was a work. Because when a bigger man with a reputation for serious violence loses more or less by being visibly gassed out, uh, betting odds are massively against uh, that, that type of outcome, so that makes me think work. 
because that's where, like I said, that's where the money goes. Yeah, they call that, what do they call that? Teeter-tottering the spread when they, they get too much action on one side. And then also, it's like he puts a young guy over for a really, really ridiculous amount of money and everybody wins. And speaking of money, a lot of money could have been made in this situation, but Parson Davies was stood up by English boxer John Nifton, who wrote to Davies about wanting to get a shot at Sullivan and wanted Davies to promote and represent him. Davies told him that he would meet Nifton in New York City, but Nifton ended up not getting on the boat. Davies was less than thrilled and wrote an angry letter, quote, I cancel your engagement as you have failed to sail as requested, end quote. According to the March 8, 1887 St. Louis Post-Dispatch, when asked why he did this, Davies replied, Simply because I am a businessman, and I don't propose to have a man flying all over England before he comes to me. It looks like Smith, Mitchell, Mace, Nifton, and company have entered upon a love feast, and so I declare myself out of the ring. Harsh words indeed. So Parson Davies didn't, like, send an email or find out his flight got canceled or find out he didn't get on a plane. Parson Davies had to get on a fucking train and go from Chicago to New York and find out this asshole didn't even bother getting on a boat. He's looking around on the dock or however it went down. Like, I get mad when somebody doesn't even email me back within, like, three days. Imagine being a promoter. You get on a train from Chicago to New York, and you wait around like an asshole for God only knows how long. I also would write a strongly worded letter. Yes, I blame the post office. This is, this is clearly Kevin Costner's fault because they didn't get the post office done in time and the movie was a lie. Yeah, it's getting like a stand style. It's like, it's like, hey, Jack Nocton, I've been writing you. I left my... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. It's a stand there. But, oh, oh, I would be pissed. I would be, I would be on another train and I wouldn't be going back home, brother. Yeah, it's like, how do you catch a train to England to beat up a guy? That's right. I didn't invent one. And with the Joe Acton-Evan Lewis rematch stalled, Davies put together a match between Lewis and Jack Karkeek, or as the Buffalo commercial called him on March 16th, Heck Karkey. Sure, <laughs> why not? Uh, Karkeek had a background of Cornish wrestling, which flourished in the mining camps. It's similar to collar and elbow, with both competitors wearing jackets like a judo or jiu-jitsu gi, and only jacket grips were allowed for throws. So no sweeps, no headlocks. Everything had to be off of like the pull and push of the of the gi or the jacket grips. Cornish wrestlers also counted pins off of the two hips and two shoulders, with three of the four required under most rules to be considered a fall or a back, as they called it. Uh, it's kind of like same thing in catch as catch can with the fair versus foil pins where if you have two hips and one shoulder or two shoulders or one hip down on the mat, it counted as a pin. Uh, Karkeek is another pioneer legend who came out of a mining town in the upper peninsula of Michigan, wrestled across the country against the top men across three decades, and was arrested along with John Carroll Marsh and many others as part of the sports-fixing Mulberry Gang in 1910, as we've discussed a little bit in other episodes. So he's one of those amazing kind of background characters that probably someday we'll have a episodes and series about him. But how tough do you have to be 
to come out as the top guy in a mining camp in the 1800s. Yeah, totally. And I, I want one of his shirts. I want one of the Mulberry Fight Fixing Camp t-shirts. That is tremendous, dude. You have to be, like, literally just carved out of wood to come out of a place like that as just the, the baddest, you know. I mean, those places breed hard men, and that's the, the baddest dude on the block. When the match was announced, Chambers and Acton claimed that Davies and Lewis were violating their agreement and that Acton was now entitled to the $500 forfeit Lewis put down for their rematch. Chambers claimed that they could rematch on March 14th, but only if Lewis dropped out of the Carkeep match. But Lewis intended to do no such thing. The match took place at the Grand Opera House in Milwaukee on March 3rd, 1887, in front of 4,000 ticket buyers. Before we jump into the match, let's look at that uh, Acton and Chambers throwing a fit because publicly they had been kind of running from the rematch. So I'm trying to figure out one of two things that it could be. Was it, we're going to work a match and then we're going to shoot a match and him trying to duck Lewis because he didn't think he could shoot with Lewis or was it they were trying to drum up publicity for another worked match. And I guess there is a third option, which is it was supposed to be work and then a work going 50-50 and Acton pulling a Hogan and saying, hey, brother, put me over and I'll put you over next time. And then delaying the next time as long as humanly possible, if not forever. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Or maybe like decided to pull an okie doke after he got the first win and asked for more money or was trying to intentionally hold it up where it's like either I keep the win and stay one up or you, you know. Yeah, you, or we 60-40 it on the next one. Yeah, you know, totally. Where, yeah, where we cook the book a little bit more in my favor. Lewis was still the hottest up-and-comer around. He might have even been a bigger star to many than Muldoon. Muldoon was still the champ, but a lot of people were just losing interest in him. Catch's catch can was becoming hotter. Greco-Roman was fading. Muldoon was like a very serious, you know, wrestler who was not open to shenanigans of any kind that were obvious anyway. So people really were looking to Lewis as the future. But if you can work a deal where you get that first fall, well, guess what? Now you can hold that win over him yeah. and refuse to do business until it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, it's like the, the first win, you get the favor, but now you have the bargaining position if you want to hold somebody up. And now it's like, how how valuable is it to get that win back? I could totally see him doing that because this is also his one shot at the big time. This is his chance to milk the biggest name in the game right there, the biggest box office draw going, and to get... It does make sense, like if the guy's gonna, if you're gonna fight somebody that you just beat and they're making way more money than you, that, there's a reason why you'd be like, I want a bigger cut. It's it's kind of like uh, Georg Lurich when he legitimately beat Hackenschmidt when Hackenschmidt was a student. Like Hackenschmidt knew five fucking things about wrestling, but Lurich beat him. And then years later, when Hackenschmidt became the biggest star in Europe, Lurich would tour, tour around as like the guy who beat Hackenschmidt. And would duck every chance for a rematch imaginable, including leaving town under cover of darkness. What so, a worker. So yeah, there is a, there is that element. But let's get back to Karkik versus Lewis in front of 4,000 people in Milwaukee. 20 minutes into the first fall, Lewis caught Karkik in the stranglehold and choked him out at the 22-minute mark. Karkik, according to the Wisconsin State Journal, quote, left the stage and entered the dressing room and he was taken with a violent spell of vomiting, 
and his trainer saw at once that it was useless to go on and advised him to give up. They were given the 15 minutes recovery time, but Karkeek couldn't do it. He forfeited the second round to get more time. So he was choked unconscious, and he in 15 minutes he couldn't get his shit together, so he essentially forfeited the second fall without even leaving the dressing room to get another 15 minutes, which I'm sure was thrilling to the crowd. You know what, though? Okay, now my hippodrome wheels are turning, because now it's like, Strangler lost. He's getting, the perception is he's getting held up for bigger money for the rematch. In the meantime, he's getting his vicious streak back. He just choked the fuck out of that man. Yeah, because when Karkeek returned to the mat for the third, he looked terrible. And he was caught in the chokehold again one minute into the fall. Oof. And Karkeek surrendered. The Chicago Tribune claimed, quote, Karkeek was unable to rise without assistance and when taken to his dressing room and stretched upon the floor, where he remained for half an hour. It is said that Karkik has received internal injuries likely to prevent his ever engaging in another match. Slightly overdramatic. Because anybody who has even taken, like, your introductory free week of jiu-jitsu classes knows that if you tap out to a guillotine, all you do is go, ah, goddammit, all right, good choke, let's go again. Like, you're, you're like... You cannot fight off a guillotine to the point where you're, like, internally ruptured. It's either A, you tap out, or B, you go unconscious, and then, like, the next day you have a little bit of a stiff neck. You're not dragged back and laid out for half an hour with them wondering if they have to write a letter to your wife giving the bad news. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the only thing that could actually happen is if they crushed your trachea, but then you'd be dead! So it's like, it'd be more than just the second fall before you got up, old Jeff. But he was able to work again, despite the worries of the doctors and his friends. It's a miracle! And a Karkeek-Lewis rematch was scheduled in Chicago at the Battery D Armory on Monday, March 14th. According to the Leader Telegram, three out of five mixed rules between Catch as Catch Can and Greco-Roman. The match would be part of a larger athletic display, with the Police Gazette giving out a medal for a club-swinging contest. I assume that's something like... What uh, the Iron Sheik would do, not two dudes clubbing each other in the head, though that would have been a better show. Oh, I thought it was like, you know, do, 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 swing dance. No? And since the rematch was two weeks later, and it was a situation where, you know, the first one was so one-sided. Yeah, like, you just got knocked the fuck out by Mike Tyson twice in the first round, and you want a rematch? Like, what are you thinking, bro? Yeah, and excitement couldn't have been too hot after the one-sided first match because only 1,000 or so showed up for the Chicago installment, so about half to one-third of the type of crowds Lewis was typically drawing. And they were figuring out who goes first with what rule set via coin toss. Karkik got the first toss and decided to make the first round Greco-Roman rules, and he won the first ball in 3 minutes 10 seconds, which is a hell of a quick amount of time for a, a worked fall, so I'm curious if that was a worked or a shoot fall, who can say? And then Lewis got to call the second fall for catch as catch can, which he won with a back hold in 9 minutes 30 seconds. The third was Greco-Roman again. Karkik tried to throw Lewis over the top ropes, which is not allowed. Lewis held onto the ropes, and Karkik slipped and fell with Lewis on top of him, which was considered a fall. The crowd went wild, yelling that the attempt to throw Lewis out was a foul, 
and Davies came out and told them that while yes, it was a foul, Lewis had, had not claimed it so, therefore he wins via pin. The crowd accepted this logic well enough, <coughs> which is so fucking weird. What a high spot. Because, yeah, it, it's like in my brain, it is the very pro modern pro wrestling. You know, somebody's trying to throw somebody into the ropes. They hang on. The other person's pulling back. The other person lets go into like a weird reverse roll up for the pin. Yeah, it's like clearly, the ref kicked the hand off or something. Yeah, and this is another move we talked about a lot in the gold dust trio era because sandow and mont loved this spot because you could do it as a flying or a rolling or a rolling fall in new york city under muldoon's rules and it would piss the crowd the fuck off and apparently that's what happened it pissed off the crowd so bad that the promoter had to come out and explain it like, like I, I, I have a feeling like they were concerned shit was going to get wild. They had bets to fulfill. So the promoter came out and explained the spot to the audience. Yeah, and I like it because it's like, either way he gets the fall. So, like, what are you, it's not like, if Strangler had, had like, okey-doked it and got the fall, then maybe it would have been like, I don't know, man. That's pretty, that's pretty hot. That's a hot angle. That's a hot spot. And then this must have really made the gamblers happy. Before the fourth fall even happened, Karkeep came out and told the crowd that he wasn't in shape for a match like this, but that within six months he would be in shape to wrestle any man for $1,000 a side. I'm sure that anyone with money on Karkeep felt a sickly rage in their hearts after hearing that, because for fuck's sake, the show isn't even over, and unsurprisingly, Lewis pinned him to win the series 3-1. to one. Can you imagine, like, uh, like in a boxing match or a MMA fight, a guy coming, like, asking for the mic between uh, rounds during the rest period, be like, look, everybody, I was really not in shape for this, but you know what? Give me six months, and I will be ready to fight anyone for this type of money. Okay, let's get this final round over with. Like, the betting odds, fuck, like, you've already handed over your money. You're fucked, and you're probably very angry. I mean, you gotta hand it to him. You know, he's he's setting up the rematch already, or at least he's trying. It's like, yeah, you get the shit kick. You you get absolutely steamrolled in the first match. You're behind and falls on the second match, and you have the audacity to come out and before the match is even over, admit that you're not in great shape. But one day soon, I will be, and then people should pay good money to see me. Like, I wonder if that was him going into business for himself, knowing he was putting him over again. Who can say? Still a bad move. But once it was done, Arthur Chambers finally agreed to a date for the Joe Acton-Evan Lewis rematch on April 11th. It was set for three out of five falls. Before the match, betting was so heavy that John Dowling Saloon wiped their names off the board and wouldn't accept bets on the match, suspecting that it was fixed. Shocking news. But you know a match is so fucking obviously worked when the, the people, like the betting houses, take it off the board because they're afraid it's going to make them look bad in a sea of dirty business. Yeah, either that or they were in on the fix and Homeboy went into business for himself. Like you said, they don't even want to touch this guy. So during the match, Acton won the first fall. Lewis took the second and third, uh, winning the third with his famous stranglehold. And he was now billed as the catch-as-catch-can American champion. 
The Nebraska State Journal reported the purse being nearly $2,000. So I would very much like to know the finances behind the whole thing because Acton and his manager like fought off a rematch as long as possible. He lost definitively inside of four falls. It was a three to one type of situation. And Lewis reportedly took away $2,000 on a match that was considered so hot in the wrong way that people weren't even allowed to bet on it. So yeah, I have a feeling it was kind of like that Ed Lewis versus Joe Stetcher uh, title switch where in order to uh, get the get the, get the right guy winning, a shitload of money had to change hands to the guy who wasn't. Yeah, and maybe the element of what they just had to deal with prior with the, the whole going into the business, because man, nothing would just kill a sports book like <laughs> Well, can you imagine Tom Brady being like, I don't have it anymore. I'm going to need to come back next season. Like, and then just the taste in their mouth after that. And anything that, because that's going to, that's going to, you know, affect Strangler. Because clearly they were setting up a big money rematch that should have been killing it at the box office. So obviously there was a problem in the plan. And at the same time, you're going to love this. Davies was trying to arrange a championship sword fight. Yes, you heard me right. A goddamn sword fight. So he was trying to set up like a, you know, like a, a fencing style, like, but it wasn't described as fencing. Fencing was already its own thing. He was trying to set up a three musketeers style, long sword, short sword in the other hand, sword fight between two weapons masters. And I am a, so sad that that did not only didn't happen, but it didn't take off and change sports forever. So many questions. Like, what does the champion get? Do you get a title belt or like a, a new helmet or maybe like a shield or something? We'll never know, unfortunately. Damn it! I want to be in that timeline. But one thing we do know is up next for Davies and Lewis was English wrestler Tom Connors on June 14th at the Grand Central Rink in Pittsburgh. $500 aside with a 75-25 split of the gate, no holds barred. And again, we're now getting into that era of no holds being barred because one man has established a hold so dangerous, so horrifying that it makes the goddamn papers. So again, brilliant marketing at this point. And I found a fun mention in the March 12th Chicago Tribune claiming that, quote, alleged wrestlers would never want a match with Connors. The article alleges that, quote, a few years ago, a gang of wrestling crooks entered a tournament in St. Louis and proceeded to fix things to suit themselves. When Connors, who was an entry, refused to be fixed or lose when he could win, they poisoned him and came very near killing him. So I love that, I love that so much because I highly doubt that happened at all. But it's, again, we're already getting the advertising of, I'm a real wrestler, the rest of them are fakes. And I'm so full of integrity that I am willing to die rather than work a match. Yeah, and they, they poisoned me for my beliefs, but I'm still here. And it's also funny that you would think that something advertised with such fervor for real competition and real wrestling would end with such a clusterfuck. The match was a mess. Connors headbutting Lewis in the first round, giving him a big old goose egg and a bad cut under Lewis's eye. Despite the crowd and Lewis's backers calling it a foul, the referee filed it under whoopsie daisies and called it unintentional. According to the Horton Gazette, Lewis fired back with a headbutt of his own. 
Lewis kicked the shit out of Connor's leg, who in turn headbutted him again and gave him another sizable cut. The referee again didn't call foul. <laughs> so, heck of a start. <laughs> yes, hot start, and apparently the, the, the hardcore element of any kind of the bloodthirsty component of a Stranger Lewis match is in full effect right here. And People I, want to see him get decapitated. Yeah, I would love to know who supplied the referee for this because there is a, an element of, oh, you get the referee on your side to make sure your even your own guy loses. You know, make sure things go smoothly. But I can't see somebody like Evan Lewis going, yeah, man, headbutt the fuck out of me. Let's smash my face to goddamn pieces in a work. Nobody, like, even in the day where there, nobody knew what CTE was, nobody had an idea about brain damage, even in those days, it was like, yeah, man, let's smash my face up so bad that I possibly couldn't work for a couple of months. So this was either somebody going into business for themselves, or it was planned as a shoot. Yeah, or it might have just been, you know, a spasmatic moment. Sometimes things happen even in a, in a work, brother, Yeah, but, that could happen. It but, could but I kind of think it was maybe intentional, though. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like this. All the other option is this could have been like, hey, we're going to work. Hey, motherfucker. Oh, yeah, well, fuck you. Well, fuck you. And now shit's just getting wild. We've seen that before. And the referee, yeah, and the referees just sit there going like, I didn't know what the plan was. Am I supposed to, am I supposed to call this? Yes. Kind of like the Stetcher Pesic match where the referee's like, oh, I, I thought, I thought that, that was a foul. So, or that's not a foul. Or now it's a foul because I'm supposed to declare this guy a winner. Who can say? But around the 23 minute mark, Lewis caught Connors in the stranglehold and was choking him out when Connors brother jumped into the ring and started punching and pulling Lewis off of Tom. What? And a riot nearly broke out. Do, 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 do. It's a running angle. Oh my God, that is awesome. Oh, it gets better. The referee again saw no foul. <laughs> <laughs> and let the match continue. Of course not. <laughs> what the fuck? While in a clinch, Connors kept headbutting Lewis on the chin, and the referee finally called it a foul and gave the fall to the bloodied up Lewis. The second saw Connors winning in three minutes with an uneventful bit of actual wrestling, but the third went back to the foul filled wackiness of the first. It ended with a referee calling the match in Connors' favor because Lewis was choking him with his hands. Back to the Horton Gazette, quote, Lewis got a grip on Connor's throat, with both wrists pressing on his windpipe. Connor's brother again rushed in and pulled Lewis off, then followed another alarming scene. Men mounted the stage from every side, and a free fight seemed inevitable. Lewis was pulled to his corner, but broke away and rushed to the middle of the platform to meet Connor's. A battle with fists between them was only avoided by the interference of friends. After quiet had been partially restored, the referee gave the fall to Connors on a claim of foul, which settled the match. Charles Davies called it, quote, the most brazen piece of robbery he ever saw and claimed he'd back Lewis for $1,000 in a rematch if an honest referee was found. So, I'm like, oh, the other thing I found, it was that there was argument about whether a strangle with the hands was forbidden because the referee claimed it was, but it was nowhere in the rules. So, you know, Lewis, for what, from whatever angle, because he said it was with the hands, but he also said it with the wrists, but they're not wearing geese. But in, in my mind, I'm picturing it as like an X choke. Who can say what it was? I assumed he was just like strangling him like it was a horrific domestic dispute in a, in a melodrama. But... 
of all the shit that happened in the match that you just heard described, how is that what gets him disqualified? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. It's like, it, it, I mean, the run-in. The, I just, I've never, I can't even fathom that. That the ref's like, oh, it's good. Yeah, it's good. It's just, just his brother. Yeah. <laughs> it, it did not affect the outcome of the fall in any way. I, I wonder if the ref like waited. Like when his brother ran in and started punching and pulling him off, the ref's like, one, two, back to the corner, three. Because <laughs> what? What an insane bit of business. And that's one where I, I do have to probably call it a shoot. Because it was just, it, it was wild, which is usually a hippodrome and a work. But it was just so damagingly violent. This wasn't, oh, I'm selling a choke like it was attempted murder. It's, we busted each other's faces up so bad that it could affect our livelihood. Yeah, it's it's a weird one, man. Because, yeah, the headbutt thing, that is definitely not something somebody would intend to do and plan to do. Like, bust me open hard way with a headbutt and then I'll yeah. do the same. They're not going to do that. The, the craziness with the falls, I could see maybe some of that. But, I mean, on the one hand, the ref is letting headbutts and letting your relatives in the ring, and that's okay, but then a, a variant of a stranglehold is not okay. It, it just, it smells like maybe they just had a dirty ref, or I just the it, guy was high or something. I yeah, drink some bad wino. I don't yeah, know, it, it feels like there was a plan, and that plan went sideways <laughs> 15 fucking ways. Dude, like, I don't even know how that... What I would love to know what that should have been. Oh, absolutely. And a month later, Davies and many other Chicago saloon owners were charged with violating the midnight closing law, which had recently gone into effect because the new mayor of Chicago was trying to clean up the city and made sure the saloons were closed at midnight. And as you can imagine, shady saloon owners had plenty of secret business to conduct in the middle of the night and paid the law no heed. So part of trying to clean up the drunken violence and the gambling culture of Chicago, we'll just try to make this a, uh, you know, bars have to be closed at midnight, which almost nobody ever did. I, I just kind of like wonder if they just got to put a, make a closed door in the back so we can do shady shit until dawn and nobody would notice from the outside. Yeah, nothing is going to be more effective with a bunch of drunken gamblers than a bedtime. <laughs> and while trying to build up publicity for Lewis like he needed any more, Davies made an open challenge for $100 to anyone who could wrestle the Strangler for 20 minutes without being thrown. Frank Whitmore, a wrestler who had recently beaten Duncan Ross, accepted it. Boxer Bill Bradburn was the referee and got nearly as good a, re a reaction as the wrestlers did, having recently put on a classic with Frank Lover. Whitmer was described as being surprisingly aggressive towards Lewis, tossing Lewis twice before Lewis managed to pin him in seven minutes. The Chicago Tribune claimed, quote, The crowd went fairly wild when, on two different occasions, he laid out Lewis. The crowd booed the result, so Davies went out and offered to give Whitmer another chance. It was equally action-packed, with Whitmer getting a front headlock on Lewis and dropping down so hard that Lewis's head cracked on the floor, quote, that sounded hard enough to have broken a hole in the stage. He recovered well enough to get a double-leg takedown and force Whitmer's shoulders onto the floor in 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Davies kept his $100, but would have trouble finding marketable opponents for the Strangler willing to take that challenge. 
So again, it's like the you know, the open challenge type of thing. Um, an unknown comes out of the woodwork, gives the strangler absolute hell, but in the end lays down. But it was so fast that the crowd was pissed. So Davies gives them another chance. Doesn't exactly smell on the up and up to me, but it's also, you know, there have been many a times where I'm sure a promoter of a legitimate match wishes they could give somebody a second shot just so the crowd felt like they got their money's worth. So this is a 50-50 for me on that on that topic. Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, either way, it's it's a way that Strangler can help make a guy or build a guy up at least to where this guy looked good, he looked competitive, he's young, but there's something there. Yeah, well, I don't think Evan Lewis gave two fucks about building him up for the audience. What he wanted to do was make this guy look dangerous, so when he beat him himself, it made him look good. Yeah. Because uh, there's one thing you would never really accuse Evan Lewis of, it's giving back to the business. So. Oh, he's given so much, though, yes. The strangle, the, the infamy of the stranglehold lives on to this day. In October, the drama from the Haymarket riot saw its tragic conclusion. Governor Richard Oglesby commuted the death sentence of Samuel Fielden, a Methodist preacher and socialist workers' right advocate, and Michael Schwab, a labor organizer. The rest of the five defendants were condemned to death. Louis Ling, a German-born anarchist who was not at the riot but was convicted of helping make the bomb that was thrown at the police, committed suicide in prison by taking a blasting cap that was smuggled into the jail and setting it off in his goddamn mouth. It was as gruesome as you can imagine, uh. blowing off his jaw and half his face. It took six hours of agony before he finally died and would eventually be pardoned posthumously in 1893 along with the men who were hanged for their part in the events of May 4th, 1886. And holy shit, if there is a way to go, holy fuck, that is not the way to do it. So to avoid being hanged in public, he had somebody smuggle in a fucking blasting cap, put it in his mouth, and bit down. And lived for a few more hours. Ugh. I can't even fathom that. That is closed casket funeral 101. You know, what do you even do when, like, you're, you're working at that prison? You're kaboom, you come out, and it's like, oh, God, is he alive? He's still alive. Shoot, put him out of his misery. How? Shoot him in the face. Where is it? Yeah, yes. right? Like, dude, that is just... Oh, that's gangster for one thing. That is that is a man willing to die for his conviction. But And then to find out he was uh, uh, exonerated posthumously, like they basically said he was innocent, then he really died for no reason? That sucks. Yeah, it's tragic, it's awful, but that's, that is history, particularly history in the United States. Back to something a little less gruesome. Pro wrestling. A Lewis Cannon rematch was scheduled for December 19th, 1887 under Catch's Catch Can rules. Two out of three falls at Battery D in Chicago. 250 aside with a standard 75-25 split of the gate. The stranglehold was barred in order to get Connors on board. There was also a contract provision that each man could have a representative watching the gate to make sure every dollar showed up where it was supposed to be. So I do love that you can kind of see the, I, I feel like the work gone wrong or whatever led to a lot of negotiations for something that would be the hot rematch. People would put aside their bad blood because money was going to be involved. 
but nobody trusted anybody. So each man would have somebody at the box office to make sure that nobody was pocketing money or that the promoter wasn't going to take a bigger cut and not report the rest. And just to give that extra layer of being on the up and up, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because nothing sells tickets like bad blood. But unfortunately, no tickets would be sold. Lewis would face serious health problems and would have to drop out of the match. It would take months for him to recover. The Urbana Ohio Daily Citizen reported that Connors would get $125 of the forfeit that Parson put down on Lewis's behalf. The right thing to do, but I'm sure they were not very happy to part with it. Yeah, I mean, that's that really is unfortunate because that's the thing you guys got to remember, man. This is back in the day. It's like you get an infection, you're gonna die. You get something broken, it stays broken. Yeah, this is before antibiotics. This is this is when like ninety percent of of the health was like, I don't know, give them some turpentine and some whiskey and rub some tar on the wound. Like it's the science was not exact. They would be like, oh boy, he's he was hit in the head with a shovel. It isn't isn't waking up. I don't know, give him a coffee enema. Like that's that's where we were. Yes, leeches and cocaine about it, and he'll be just fine by morning. And at the same time, boxing in New York was becoming increasingly difficult to promote as Methodist minister Robert Collier decried the sport as brutal and signs of a sick society. Anthony Comstock took up the same banner with his New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and badgered the government into passing the Comstock Act, which forbade the transportation through mail any lewd materials, which even included information on abortion and STDs. Comstock was responsible for raiding libraries and destroying books in big public demonstrations. Always a good sign throughout history when you need to know who the bad guys are. But as Mark T. Dunn pointed out in his biography, Chicago's greatest sportsman, Charles E. Parson Davies, if Comstock had attempted a public raid of a boxing match the same way he attacked libraries, quote, he and his fellows would have been beaten to a pulp. So Comstock was the sort of oppressive religious prude that sought to impose his beliefs as rule of law and would have probably burned as witches a few centuries earlier instead of trying to lock them up for seeking birth control or the ability to vote. Thank goodness we don't have officials like that in 2022. Am I right? <sighs> in New York, boxing was like it was in many places. Things were being, you know, boxing was having trouble with the law. It was hard to promote. It was hard to promote legally. Licenses weren't giving out. Major cities didn't want anything to do with it. Boxing matches were having to be relegated to, you know, farms on the uh, outskirts of cities. And it was getting worse when you started having the religious element come in and say, boxing is the sign of, of the apocalypse. It is of the devil. It shows that you are bad people doing bad things who need to turn to the Lord and getting the government on their side. And you also have to remember, again, Parson Davies was primarily a boxing promoter. He, wrestling was a small percentage of his business. He was primarily making his money and his name off of boxing. We just gloss over this because A, this is a wrestling podcast, and B, if we included all of his boxing work, we would be talking forever. So we gotta keep it a little bit focused, but bringing the boxing into, into it whenever it was necessary. Yeah, I just, I don't think I can ever recall a time where religious zealots mixed well with uh, professional fighting. Oh, at all, or most any other parts of society. Well, fortunately, there was wrestling money to be made, and around this time, Parson Davies began working with Colonel John D. Hopkins, who managed the Casino Theater in Chicago. 
In January 1888, William Muldoon, the Solid Man, was appearing at the Casino Theater, promoted by the Hallen and Hart Specialty Company. He was doing his weird living statue photo op gimmick, and then doing uh, open challenges, offering $25 to anyone who could last 15 minutes with him under Greco-Roman rules, with very few people taking the offer, because, hey, you know what, this is a guy who's been the champ for you know, several years, I think eight years at this point specifically, and to have him go out and to say, I want anybody who can wrestle me under Greco-Roman rules when most of the stars of today preferred catch as catch can, and I've been dominant in this arena for so long, you're not going to get many people taking a shot at him under his, uh, under his speciality. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a way to keep himself protected is what it really is, you know? So Hopkins sought to increase business by upping it to $100 for anyone who could last 15 with a solid man, and Evan Lewis accepted that challenge. Dun, dun, dun. The match was set for January 30th. Lewis attempted to back out at the last minute, claiming that after a match in Peoria a few days before, he realized his body was still shot from being sick. Hopkins insisted he go through with it, and Davies talked him into it. It's, and that's understandable. Again, like, this is not a day of, of like, you know, you see a specialist for, for like, a hip problem and you get, like, you know, an inhaler for your asthma. It was just like, hey, I, you know, it's like you get sick. It's like, well, he's either going to get better or he won't. And, you know, and then you go back out into it after being sick for two months and trying to be world-class competitive. Not exactly an easy thing to do. Yeah, especially when you're talking about taking on the champ in his subgenre of grappling. Exactly. But he went through with it. Boxer Frank Glover was the referee. I guess he got over any hurt feelings from Lewis refereeing his fight and giving him an undeserved loss in 1886. The crowd was at capacity. According to the New Year Eve's edition of the Chicago Tribune, with 500 more turned away. Muldoon wasn't able to throw Lewis, even though Lewis did fuck all in the 15-minute frame except defend. <laughs> but when it's time limit challenges, that's enough to win. Defense wins these matches. The crowd turned on them with loud accusations of being fakes, and Muldoon lost his temper and yelled at the crowd, quote, Gentlemen, it was not a put-up job. The reason I did not throw Mr. Lewis was because I lacked the ability to do so. I would have thrown him if I could, and I tried my best. Oh boy, those are some harsh words for that crowd. Dude, what Quite a, the rebuke. Man, what a what a white meat baby face. He's like what would what would the most boring guy in the room say? In the St. Louis <laughs> Exactly. In the St. Louis dispatch on February 28th, Muldoon had been interviewed and complained, "I struggled and fought with him for 15 minutes, and when I got through with him, I had a black eye and a couple of loose teeth to show for my trouble." So this is one where I do kind of feel it was legitimate. Um, it was a, a shoot just because it did have that time limit draw. Muldoon, after his business with Whistler, I don't think he wanted to do business with people who felt like loose cannons, but I could be wrong. Yeah, no, and I mean, it, it makes sense because that seems like the what would be likely the, the outcome if it was a shoot is he's... Strangler's, you know, not feeling 100%, so he's going to try to just play conservative, play defense, and milk out the draw because the draw is the win. 
But whether it was a work or a shoot, Davies saw money in the two men, so he created the Parson Davies Specialty Company, taking Muldoon and Lewis on a tour as stars. Davies offered $50 to any man who could last 15 minutes with Lewis under catch rules, and $100 to anyone who could beat him. Things got complicated immediately with their first night in Milwaukee. Jack Karkeek showed up and took the challenge, and Lewis couldn't throw him. Wrestler Dia McMillan announced that he would challenge Muldoon the following night. With the hungry pros planning to pop up at every show, it suddenly became a much more difficult way for Davies to keep his money in his pocket. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so now we're seeing, like, the carnival-style barnstorming thing, where at every turn, they're at least announcing themselves. They're not showing up in overalls and a straw hat claiming to be Ted Goofersberg from, uh, from Pittsburgh. It's like the bigger stars are, show, are announcing, I'm going to show up, and we know he's not going to be able to throw me in 15 minutes. Because, again, it's a play defense to get the money. Yeah, you, they, you're, giving a, you're giving a shot at the two biggest names in the game back, you know. I mean, what do you think's going to happen? Yep, so they're showing up. They're going, hey, man, I, I think I can take a shot at this guy. Because, again, they don't have to beat him. They just have to last 15 minutes of not getting beaten in order to take Davies $25. So we are seeing the blowback of the, uh, the, the national media ability, where now a tour is going to happen, and it's going to go coast to coast. Everybody knows what cities they're going to be in. Everybody has plenty of advance notice. So the big stars can be like, hey, man, I'm going to be in uh, whatever city when you're there. I challenge this guy, and Davies is going to have to pay out $25 at least every single night, which... I don't think he wanted to do. So that backfired. How Talk about screwing up the booking with the two biggest stars in the business. So they moved things back, and back to Chicago. On February 13th, the company was at the Casino Theater with boxing. That's right, boxing in Chicago. It was the first time boxing had been allowed in Chicago since the Haymarket riots. The main event was Karkeek versus Muldoon under Greco-Roman rules. So Davies pulled off a great move. He used his good relationships and his good image with the mayor, with the police, with everybody. He repaired burn bridges, and he was able to provide boxing. But the boxing would be much different than what we're every, you know, we thought or what everybody's going to be thinking of because it was regulated down to just being sparring exhibitions. There was no going for the KO. There was no going to mess up a guy's face so bad that he gives up. These were technical sparring matches for exhibition purposes. So for those of us who have done kickboxing, MMA, boxing, pretty much think of it as if you were allowed to go out and put on a 50% effort, 50% speed, 50% power sparring exhibition, and they were calling that a match. Uh, you know what? Sign me up. <laughs> no, no, the, You could have a good career doing that. But also, that's pretty cool because, I mean, this is – a mixed card, you know? They got boxing with wrestling on top. This is pretty awesome. On March 21st, 1888, in Buffalo, New York, Evan the Strangler Lewis versus Dennis Gallagher in front of 1,500 fans for $500 and 100% of the gate money, reportedly around $2,000 total. Lewis had to throw Gallagher five times in 60 minutes. 
So everything I just described does not make this sound like an up and up kind of uh, kind of event. Not at all, man. Because that's setting up a huge amount of odds in the way of Evan Lewis. This is putting up every opportunity for Gallagher to win because you have to outclass somebody to such a huge level to beat them six times in an hour at a pro level. Yeah, this is the sort of thing where, yeah, we could do the, you know, the the fun game of seeing how many white belts you can tap before you break a sweat. But this is not that. This is a pro who's operating at a high level and they're risking thousands of dollars in 1880s money, 100% of the gate. A, you went all the way from from Wisconsin and Chicago to New York, possibly with not coming back with a dollar to your name. Something about this smells, what does it smell like? It has a very distinct odor. It smells like, ah, yes. it smells, it's, it's sweet yet bitter at the same time. Could it be? Uh, the drone? Yes, it's, it's gotta be, man. It's just, Nothing else has that, uh, that aroma of cooking the books. And we are not alone. The March 8th Buffalo Times also had doubts about the legitimacy of the match. <gasps> Gallagher and Evan Lewis may wrestle charges of Hippodrome at the Adelphia. It is freely asserted in sporting circles here that the contest between Karkik, McMillan, and Leonard with Muldoon and Lewis are mere Hippodromes. Parson Davies denies the allegation. And if it was a Hippodrome, it was a seriously messy one, either by design or by accident. New York Sun on the 22nd reported, The Strangler at his old game. Quote, The most vicious wrestling match ever seen here was contested tonight in Turner Hall. Quote, The first fall was made in three minutes. In the second, Gallagher exerted all his strength, and avoiding a fall was nearly thrown off the stage. Lewis began to get mad and threw Gallagher around promiscuously. I love the use of that <laughs> Yeah, totally. Once landing him on the laps of the reporters. Twice he tried the stranglehold, but Gallagher, who was expecting it, evaded it, and Lewis threw him with a grapevine while fainting a third strangle. The time was ten minutes. And there were no rest periods in a match like this. So it was just immediately, it was like, tap, reset, go. No. You didn't get your 15 minutes. They were going straight through all these falls, which sounds horrible to deal with, but so it goes. They went immediately back at it for the third. Lewis got Gallagher down, twisting his arm behind his back and pushing his weight down on him, trying to force his shoulders down. Lewis then pressed his elbow into Gallagher's throat and waited for him to give up. So he's got him like from side control with a cross arm hammer lock underneath. Uh, you know, think of like, who was it that Gary Goodrich knocked out where he did it from guard? He like got the uh, hammer from behind and just started throwing punches on the other side. It was kind of like that from side control, but he couldn't quite get the second shoulder down. So being Evan Lewis, he just put his elbow slash forearm on the guy's throat and just put all his weight on it from side control while controlling the other arm, waiting for the guy to give up. What a fucking savage move. Yeah, and you know what? That will in a in a multiple fall match, that's gonna pay multiple dividends because the longer he holds out, you're not getting out of that. You're probably gonna get pinned eventually, and the only variable is how much energy you expend and waste before that happens. So that probably was a really, really intelligent move. Well, he escaped from the move. What? With a little help. Quote. 
The buffalo man's muscles remained rigid, but as his breath gave out, the gurgling showed that he was strangling. Mayor Becker called police superintendent Morris' attention to it, and the latter interfered. It was all several big policemen could do to tear Lewis away from his half-fainted antagonist. A blow with a club aimed at Lewis's head missed him, but he let go. There was considerable confusion, and the referee called it a draw. What the hell? That's a... So I gotta think the mayor, like, jumped the shark on that one, right? That can't be part of the drone. It, yeah, it, it strikes me as... I can't imagine getting the mayor and the police involved on this at this level. Yeah. It's not entirely out of the question. I mean, that was something that Stetcher and Lewis would do in the 1920s with their matches. But this one, when they're locking down kayfabe so hard for gambling, I can't imagine them getting the cops and the mayor involved. I feel like they probably did have a predetermined outcome. But shit once again went fucking wild. Where the match is like underway, he's strangling the shit out of him, the mayor is offended, he tells the cops to go in. Lewis either, you know, doesn't doesn't know how to react because now the cops are coming in with fucking clubs. Yeah. Like, or he was just going, man, this is getting wild. Presses down even harder. You know, just like, oh, if we're going to do a show. Let's do a fucking show. Dude, talk about heat, though, brother. When you, when you choke a motherfucker so bad, the mayor has to send in the police. The Buffalo Times reported that, quote, Gallagher was all used up and was carried away to his dressing room, while Lewis was comparatively fresh and without any doubt would have won the match if it had been allowed to proceed. But this was prohibited by the police, who, by the order of the superintendent, cleared the hall of a crowd that was very wroth at having its fun spoiled and gave vent to expressions anything but complimentary to the mayor. <laughs> like, I like the way that that was worded. Declaring that he should stay home where he belonged. Who, boy, that like that's what cruel taunts, what mean-spirited words, what an insult, that he should have stayed home and minded his own business. Oh. This is the sort of crowd that today would have been chanting, fuck the police, and, uh, you know, kicking over trash cans. So, yeah, the, the crowd was fine with the mayhem that was occurring. They were just very upset that they got it, uh, they got the night cut short early. Yeah, if it was a work, they would have, it would have ended with, like, uh, the match getting restarted and everybody would have just, the place would have blown. See, so yeah, I feel there was a predetermined outcome. They just didn't quite yeah. get to that outcome and just had to ride out police interference. I mean, what can you do when the mayor decides to go into business for himself and fuck your angle up? Yeah, it makes me think about like some of those Ed Lewis and John Pesek matches where they they clearly had like the dirty finish outcome, but the crowd or the police or everybody was so fucking hot that it was like, oh, we may die here, but we're not breaking character. We are not breaking kayfabe. We're gonna ride this to the grave if it fucking if if, if required of us. So I feel like again, they, they had a plan, it went sideways, but they stuck with it because you gotta stick with it. Well at that point you just gotta ride it out, man. I mean, because that's an unforeseen uh circumstance if there ever was one. But yeah, so they literally snuck out under the cover of night and headed back to Chicago. Uh, on March 22nd, Davies had returned to the Windy City. He was already setting up Lewis's next train wreck of a match against English wrestler and boxer Jack Wanup, who had arrived in the U.S. with hopes of fights and matches against the top men of the nation, including hopes of a boxing match with John L. Sullivan. The match was set under catch-as-catch-can rules, 
three out of five, bar nothing, according to the March 23rd Chicago Tribune, a topic we'll call back to with those rules agreed upon. So the wording does seem to imply strikes being allowed. Was it a no disqualification kind of setup? Hard to tell from the wording, but maybe not from the eventual outcome. The date was set for May 7th, with the winner getting 75% of the receipts. Meanwhile, when the Davies tour reached New York City, Lewis went to the London Theater on March 26th or 27th, depending on which paper you read, where Sorokichi Mitsuda was performing, offering $50 to any man who could throw him in 15 minutes. When the challenge was announced, Lewis volunteered. I am Evan Lewis. I am here for business, he declared. Matsuda's manager quickly announced that a different man was somehow already chosen for uh, the night. <laughs> yeah, I bet he did. And after this, Matsuda was booked for the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who are you? I'll take the challenge. Who are you? I am Evan Lewis. I am here for business. Oh, fuck. You know what I just remembered? Dude, yeah. I just remembered that that guy's going to wrestle Matsuda. Fuck, man. I am so sorry. This is so awkward. Yeah. Oopsie man. doodles. And, man, we already got guys lined up till Sunday. So, sorry. You're leaving town by then, right? Right? Yeah, good, good. Because we got people lined up all week or we would totally let you in. He should have thought of that when they when the, all the guys were lining up for his open challenge. Evan Lewis offered to wrestle both Matsuda and the challenger they'd already picked, claiming he would throw them both. The crowd was, fuck yeah, they were so hot for this <laughs> idea. <laughs> Shit on their angle. But Matsuda's backers refused, claiming that the challenge offer was only for men from New York, not a traveling Wisconsin man. Uh, Lewis's comeback, reported by the Interocean on March 28th, was, I may be from Wisconsin, but I mean business and would like to earn $50. The argument got so heated that Mitsuda himself even came out and told Lewis's handler that he talked too much, and Mitsuda's backers told him to shut up before there was trouble. So imagine buying a ticket to the theater where this Japanese wrestler who famously lost to Lewis twice in a row, is doing the open challenge. Who shows up but Evan Lewis? He offers every fucking stipulation to get in that, uh, to get on that stage. He's like, I'll, I'll wrestle Mitsuda. Oh, he's already booked against this guy. Cool, bring him out too. I'll wrestle him too. Oh, well, the challenge is actually only for for uh, for wrestlers from New York. You're from Wisconsin, so you you don't qualify. It's the Simpsons. Hey, we, uh, it's the No Homers Club. Well, you have, you know, Homer whatever. Yeah, we're allowed to have one. It's the No Homers Club. <laughs> it's, and the crowd's like, fuck yeah, let's see some goddamn chaos. And then Matsuda's guys are mouthing off to Lewis's guys. And then Matsuda comes out, starts mouthing off. It gets so bad that Matsuda's own handlers are like, shut up and get backstage before shit gets even worse. So it is absolute chaos. And a lot of the papers were indicating that they they thought that he showed up and did this just for the publicity, knowing he wouldn't get uh, in there. But you know what? There's no such thing as bad publicity, particularly when you show up looking to start some shit and everybody backs down. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty gangster of him. Especially, like, if, if you, the guy issuing the open challenge declines your acceptance, you kind of punked him. And, uh, I mean, I'll say this, though. It's set up. I'm hyped for the angle now. Now people want to see that shit. Oh, yeah. He has done everything right. 
as far as getting attention. Yeah. You know, in the early, you know, previously, as I talked about in the last episode, like we've talked about on two different series, the Evan Lewis and Mitsuda matches were so brutal, so violent, so ungentlemanly that it made Evan Lewis a star, a star villain, but still a star. And then, you know, you have the violent matches that we talked about today. You have the near riot breaking out when the mayor sends in the police to break up the match with Gallagher. And now you see him going in and being a fucking bully, you know, challenging, uh, you know, somebody like Matsuda to a fight that he doesn't want, his handlers don't want, and him just pretty much them having to wave a white flag to get out of the situation. So we'll kind of put a pin in things on that front with with uh, that moment. We'll freeze it in time. We'll go back to it next time with Parson Davies Part 3. How are you enjoying this story so far? Dude, this is fucking wild. This is one of the best episodes we've ever had in terms of the content because this is just shenanigans afoot. Oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's bar fights. It's attempted murders. It's a legitimate murder. It's manslaughter. It's federal fraud. It's wrestling. It's boxing. It's crazy religious people trying to forbid boxing in New York. It's works. It's more violence. It's everything you want in pro wrestling. Yeah, man. This is this is what it's all about. This is like prime Hippodrome Expressing right here. And I'm excited for uh, part three, brother. Yeah, so we'll get back to that one in a couple of weeks. But for now, make sure you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. If you're on a podcast format where you can you know, do reviews, you can, you can rate it, please be kind to us. Our feelings are very fragile and we cry easily. Yeah, and I'll kill you. That too, that is always a concern. So until next time, when we get back to the story of Charles Parson Davies, goodbye for now. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Smell you later. Yeah, peace out, nerds. Hippodrome away!